Read with me the word of God, Luke 1, 5 to 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijai, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was cho chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside <clears throat> at the door of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing to the right side of the altar of the incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until that day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me. He took away my reproach among the people. A good question this time of year is, are you ready? I mean, uh... It's almost Christmas. If you haven't got your, all your shopping done, uh, there's a little bit of time left, uh, but you're running out of time if you like to order online because there's uh, only so many days uh, for shipping. Uh, for most of the guys here, we know you're going to shop on the 24th, and that's fine. Knock yourself out, so you've got tons of time. But are you ready? That same thing might be true if, if you're expecting guests from out of town. Are you ready? Is the house ready for the invasion of the family and friends who might be uh, showing up? Is there linens cleaned and towels available and enough soap and um, whatever else you might require? Is there food in the pantry? Uh, we got to be ready. In fact, it'd be, it, it's really frustrating when you're not ready and somebody just shows up, right? Yeah, all of a sudden, a whole family shows up and you say, hey, we're going to stay here for Christmas, be here a week or two. Uh, okay, got to scramble. What are we going to do? We're not ready for that. And the question that floats to the surface when it comes to Zechariah and Elizabeth and their baby John, who will be John the Baptist, is are we ready for the Lord? Are we ready for the Lord? 
uh, since the ending of the last prophet to the time of Zechariah, there's been 400 years that have gone by. Now, the people of Israel are expecting the Messiah. They're expecting God to send a Savior. They're not certain how that will look or what that's going to be like or who that might be, but there's a certain expectation for it. But now, 400 years later, and everybody's sort of, well, yeah, sure, he's coming. He's going to send a Savior, but at a certain point, you get on with life. And Zechariah, at least, is a good example of what it looks like to not be ready. God breaks in and interrupts Zechariah's otherwise normal life. And the, the fact is, although he was receptive to the word of the Lord, he was not ready for what God had for him. The question is this, we might ask ourselves before we jump into the scripture here this morning. If God were to interrupt your life, if God were to insert himself into your schedule without asking, without prearranging, just show up and interrupt your life, are you ready? Are you ready for that? If God were to suddenly show up, a believer or one who is not a believer, if God were to show up and interrupt your life, would you say, yeah, I'm ready for that, or would you be caught unawares? So let's talk about this today, ready for the Lord. Just two or three things we're going to look at uh, very briefly in, in Zechariah's life. First thing, ready for the Lord. If you like taking notes, you might want to jot this down. First thing you might want to throw into the back of your mind if you want to be ready for the Lord is this, the impossible is possible. The impossible is possible. There's a movie that came out a long time ago. It's hard for me to say that because it came out when I was in high school or something like that. So for me to say it was a long time ago makes me feel old. But it was called Back to the Future. And the time machine in this film was a vehicle called a DeLorean. Now some of the kids are going, what is that? Google it, you'll be fine. So what, you know, I don't know if you remember this film, how it works, but you had to get the vehicle up to 88 miles an hour in order for it to go back in time. Well, the movie plays out, happy ending, everybody falls in love, it's wonderful. Then at the end of the movie, after everything is finished, Dr. Brown returns with the time machine, DeLorean, and tells the couple that he'd been working with, we've got to go now into the future because your kids are a train wreck. Hop in. So they hop in. They pull out of the road, and Marty, Marty McFly, is Doc, there's not enough road to get it up to 88 miles an hour. Everybody knows, you know the line, right? Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. And you discover at that moment, the DeLorean is now a flying car. See, before Marty saw the flying car, in his mind, he only had one category for getting a vehicle up to 88 miles an hour. You have, based on the acceleration of the vehicle, you have to have a certain amount of road to get there. But if you change the reality that the car flies, how much road do you need? It no longer matters. And this is how Zechariah was working in his reality. He had a certain way things worked. And when God showed up in his life, he said, you've drawn this little box that you think God works in, and your little box is too small for me, Zechariah. Where we're going, we don't need young people who are fertile to have babies. And so the angel comes to Zechariah, and Zechariah is in the temple, and he's been drawn to light and burn the incense. And this is important because the incense was burned as a way of worship to God, recognizing that there is something between us and God. That's why the incense was burned. It would throw up all this smoke. It smelled good, but all this smoke would go up, and it was intended to remind the worshipers as the smoke goes up, 
We can't see God very well because there's something between us, and that something is our disobedience and our rebellion. And so Zechariah is worshiping God in a way that's supposed to demonstrate our need for the barrier to be removed, and in the midst of that, an angel shows up, and Zechariah's own sin comes flying out. The angel says, your prayers have been heard. You and your wife are going to have a baby. And Zechariah says, I'm old. My wife is old. Old plus old equals no baby. And so Zechariah assumed this little box of what God could work in. If God was going to give us a baby, he has to use biology. If God is going to give us a baby, he has to follow the rules. If God is going to give us a baby, here's how he can do it. Now, this is just my opinion. I have a scripture verse for this. My experience has been, so I could be wrong, is God routinely says, oh, really? I have to do it that way? Now I'm, I was going to, but now I'm not going to. Now I'm going to do it a different way, just to blow your doors off. What's funny is Zechariah expected God to do the impossible. It says his prayers had been answered. What does that tell us about Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age? They expected to have a baby. So we can think of it this way. Uh, Zechariah understood the impossible was impossible, but what's even stranger about Zechariah is he knew God could do the impossible, and so he asked for too little. He only asked for a baby. And what did God give him? The forerunner to the Messiah. And this is why Gabriel the angel gets so frustrated with Zechariah, is twofold, is First of all, he was asking for something impossible, which bring glory to God. And yet, on the other hand, he doesn't really believe God is going to do it. Not only that, he's asking for something impossible. And in another sense, the angel might say, if you're going to ask for something impossible, swing for the fences. All you've asked for is a baby. Why not ask for a baby who's going to fit into the eternal redemptive work of God himself? One of the problems of Zechariah is he expected not too much, but he expected too little. Look at verse 18 of Luke chapter 1. Zechariah said to this, to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. I don't know if he's being polite about his wife or not. I'm an old man, and my wife? Well, speak for yourself. This is not an expression of how the mechanics would work. But Mary's going to ask a very similar question later, and the angel's going to have no problem with it. Mary's question was this. Explain to me the process because I'm not married. Should I get married and be with Joseph so this can happen? Tell me how this needs to work. And the angel said, don't worry about it. God's got it. Zechariah's not asking the same thing. Zechariah is asking this theological question. Really? Okay. Yeah, sure. No, that's fine, Gabe. So, the problem is not that Zachariah is asking too much. Give me a baby in my old age. The problem is Zachariah is asking for too little. He has no idea the great things God wants to do through him, through his son, and through the miracle of God bringing a child to these old people. 
just as an aside here, we might ask this question, and I've asked this before. It's not originally to, original to me. Another pastor has asked it, and I think it's a valuable question, but let's think about it this way. If God right now said every prayer you have prayed for the last 12 months is a yes, let's just say he does that right now. In this moment, he says, every prayer you have prayed to me for the last 12 months, I give to you. The question is twofold. Is the world going to be different if he did that for all of our prayers? Would the world be changed? If God said yes to everything we prayed, was the, would, would the world be different? Maybe a more pointed question would be, at, would be this. Would anyone else experience anything, or would only us? Or would anybody outside of the four walls of our home experience the power of God, or would it only be the people in our home? The question is, if God gave us everything we prayed for, would it really be a work of God? Or would it just be happenstance? And this is one of the things Zechariah has missed in his prayer. He's praying a prayer of faith, give me a child. But even in that number, he doesn't necessarily believe God would give it, just trying to be a good Christian, so to speak. And secondly, if God does give what Zechariah is asking, it won't accomplish the purposes of God. God's purpose is not primarily to give Zechariah and his wife a baby. His purpose is to make ready the way of the Lord. Look at John chapter 1, verse 19. Let's hear from John himself what God was up to in bringing him. This is John 1.19. I'm going to read a, several verses from 119 to about verse 34, but I'm going to skip around so you may have to kind of try and follow with me. This is the testimony of John. And the, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to him and asked, Who are you? And he confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No, that's the prophet. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses says, A prophet will come that is better than me. And he's saying, No, I'm not that guy. Verse 22. So they said, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight or make ready the way of the Lord as Isaiah said. So what does John say his job is? To make ready the way of the Lord, to prepare the people for the arrival of God himself. Okay, skip down to verse 29. Jan answered, I baptize you with water. But among you stands one, that is the Lord, whose sandals, the strap of whose sandals, I am not worthy to untie. He's saying the Lord is coming, I am preparing the way for him. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. Now we have to understand, nowadays, shoes is not a big deal. Back then, that was the most humiliating and grossest of jobs, to untie somebody's shoes. Verse 29 of John chapter 1, still. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him, and see, listen to what he says about Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is the Lamb of God's job? Take away the sin. What is sin? Disobedience against God. God's ways are not needed. God's ways aren't important. My ways are what matters. I'll do it my way. I don't think I need to obey God or what he has said. I need to do things my way. Who in the world has disobeyed and rebelled against God? Everybody. 
everybody has violated God's standard and rebelled against him. We have a couple of problems with God. His standards are dumb, according to our rebellion. They're not fun, according to our rebellion. And if given the right opportunity, we would make a better God than him. Do you believe you would be a better God than God? Of course, you're in church, you're going to say no, of course not. Have you ever disagreed with how things have gone with your, in your life? Have you ever prayed a prayer something like this? God, really? Are you, I mean, are you serious? You've never prayed that prayer? Okay, that's a great one. That's you in your heart saying, God doesn't know what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. And listen, we all pray that. I don't want you to feel bad about it. Oh, I mean, more than you should. It's just the way our heart is programmed. I know what ought to be, and when God doesn't do it my, my way, he's either mean or ill-informed. And this is the, the condition of the human heart. Every single person has rebelled against God, and Jesus is coming on the scene to take away the sin. Very important to notice here what John did not say about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who makes sure you don't sin anymore. Does it say that? Are you thinking or you got an answer? Does it say, behold the Lamb of God who is going to make it so you don't sin anymore? As by, you're, you don't want to say it's okay, do you? It's a struggle. It doesn't say that. Religion tells us what we need to do, if, we, if the religion was a DeLorean, we'd get into the car and we say, we need to get this car up to 88 miles an hour. In order to do that, we need to clean up our act and get things going the right direction, and then God will like us and bless us, and maybe I'll get into heaven. And Jesus turns to us where we're going, we don't need that anymore. What I'm going to do is just take your sin all away. I mean, that's a scandal. He just shows up and says, I'll just take all your sin away. I, I, you need to look, are you looking at John chapter 129? Find the qualification. Where in it? I will take your sin away as long as you then, after I take it away, do what I'm supposed to, you're supposed to do. Uh, if, you, if you get your act together after that, then, then it'll be. Otherwise, deal's off. What is required for Jesus to take your sin away? Faith. Believe he tells the truth. Believe he has the power to pay for your sin on the cross, and believe he actually rose from the dead, and the Bible says your sin is taken away. So what does John do to prepare the world for this kind of Savior? This is not what the world was expecting. What does John do to prepare the world for a Savior who's going to take their sin away? What does he spend his time doing? Telling everybody they're a sinner. Everybody was coming down to the Jordan River, and the Bible tells us they were confessing their sins and repenting, and John was baptizing them. So everybody who was getting baptized with John was saying, dirty, rotten sinner. And then John would do this. He'd point to Jesus and say, there's, there's your help. So you go to the doctor. One doctor might tell you what's wrong with you. Another doctor might give you a prescription. John is the one who gives you the bad news. John's whole job was to tell people they didn't measure up to God's standard. Jesus' whole job is to say, I'll pay for it. How do you prepare the way for one who is going to pay the bill? Tell everybody what they owe. And it got him killed. Because he went so far to tell Herod he was a sinner. 
And instead of Herod saying, you know, you're right, I believe in Jesus, Herod cut off John's head. Zechariah wanted a baby. God wanted to give him someone and use Gabriel, or I should use, say use Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth to bring greatness to the world, greatness in humility in telling the world that there is a Savior to come. Are you ready for the Lord? First thing we need to understand, the impossible is possible with God. A couple of things, and then we're going to move on to the second thing. Do you want to be ready for God? Look at uh, Luke 1, 37. Luke 1, verse 37. Flip back over to Luke. This is what the angel says to Mary. For nothing will be impossible with God. Okay, some of you, I got to bring this up. I know you've been asked. Can God make a rock big enough that he can't hold it? What? No, he wouldn't do that. I'll, I'll just leave that one with you, but if you're asking, can God make a rock big enough, you do not really understand how God works. God does nothing contrary to his character. Making a rock that's infinity big is contrary to his character, so that doesn't make any sense. Um, do you want to be ready for God? Verse uh, one, Luke one thirty seven. nothing is impossible with God. If we want to be ready for God, we need to be willing to repent and agree that what we believe is impossible is actually too small a thing to ask God for. That God's possible far exceeds anything we might imagine. In fact, I might even say this, as long as we're talking about repenting, we actually prefer our impossible dreams to the things that God is actually up to in regard to his redemptive plan. When it comes right down to it, Zachariah and Elizabeth were perfectly happy with just a baby. And that's not what God was up to. He said, I want to bring someone who's going to usher in the kingdom of God. Your dreams are too small. We prefer, though, our prayers that are just kind of impossible to what God's actually up to bringing salvation to the world. We need to repent. The impossible is possible with God. To be ready for God's second coming, we need to remember that the impossible is possible with God. Look at Zechariah's life. What things in Zechariah's life demonstrate that he is faithful to God? Number one, he prayed and asked for a baby. Other than that, he had a hard go. The angel of the Lord shows up in church and he questions the angel's character. And we discover something about God's work. Notice when Zechariah questioned what the angel was telling him, the angel didn't say, you know what? Never mind, Zach. We'll go to somebody else. You don't measure up, Zechariah. Isn't it fantastic that God's work here with Zechariah was not based on Zechariah's ability to be awesome? That the angel came knowing Zechariah's doubt and fear? But the entire work of God in the, in the life of Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth had nothing to do with Zechariah's faithfulness. It had everything to do with God's faithfulness. One of the most impossible things that God does every single day is he maintains absolute faithfulness and power to us despite our wayward and faithless ways. We don't read Zechariah and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not like that. We read about Zechariah and say, I am glad God uses people like that. Because our doubts 
likely far exceed his. Want to be ready for God, recognize the, the impossible is possible with God. Okay, look down in your, in your Bible to verse 57 of Luke 1. Now the time for Elizabeth came to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her, which is great. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, um, no, his name is John. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name, so that's a weird name to choose. They made signs to his father. What does that tell us about Zechariah's condition? He was, couldn't speak, but what else? Couldn't hear. They wouldn't need to make signs to him if he could hear. they just talked to him. So they made signs to his father inquiring what they wanted him to be called. So the issue is here, did he hear Elizabeth tell everybody that they ought to call him John? No, but certainly they had talked about it. Probably they had to text one another at night. They made signs to him, and he said he got it for a writing tablet. It's a piece of wood, has a wax on it, and you use a little stencil or a piece of wood, and you can etch the wax with lettering, and then you can, of course, heat the wax up and, and use it again. So they asked for a wax tablet, and he wrote, his name is John, and immediately his tongue was loosed. And he spoke. And what was the first thing that came out of his mouth? He blessed God. Are you want to be ready for the Lord? We need to understand that by God's faithfulness, the faithless become faithful. The faithless become faithful. Zechariah, who had little to no faith when the angel showed up over the course of his wife's pregnancy, and by God's grace, he had learned what it means to trust the Lord. He had learned to understand that God keeps his word, and God was going to take this faithless priest and make him faithful by changing the course of his heart. In the temple, when the angel announced the birth of John to him, he was filled with doubt. He was filled with fear and questioning. But God didn't reject Zechariah. Instead, what God did was he used the circumstances of his life to change Zechariah. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read from Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. So he says here, it's a blessing you should give to the people of Israel. I bring this up because normally when the priest would come out of the temple, we're pretty sure he would say this blessing. What blessing did Zechariah say when he came out of the temple? Nothing. Remember, he was... Uh, he had nothing. And so now that God has worked and he has uh, changed his heart, that he is now faithful to God, it says God has blessed him. And here's what the priest would have said as a blessing. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So Zechariah went from hearing the word of a God and questioning God and now having his heart redone and seeing the faithfulness of God, he now expresses blessing on the people around him. The opportunity he had missed when he had come out of the temple. Now he has gone from one who is weak and wavering in his faith and by God's 
grace and love and faithfulness, his, his faith has strengthened, and he is now serving God faithfully and serving the people of the Lord. Something has changed. Again, another movie reference. This is, is silly, so I almost apologize to bring it up. Another movie. It's called Groundhog Day. If you've seen this film. So a guy, something happens. I don't think it's based on actual science. <laughs> but the day repeats over and over and over again. What's he do at first? He realizes he can't die, right? Because every day repeats. So what is he, he does everything he's ever wanted. Over and over. He does everything he wanted. Good, bad, and indifferent. And then pretty soon, what happens? It just gets dull. And then what happens over time as he realizes this pursuit of self is empty and boring and dull and the world doesn't have what it says it has? What does he begin to do? He's got all the time in the world. He begins to serve others. He starts looking for ways over the course of time to invest and help others out. Zechariah here, over the course of nine months of being stuck in his own head, has realized, I have spent my life pursuing a blessing for me. And now God has shown me that there's a blessing I ought to be giving others. Before Zechariah's a work of the Lord in his heart, he would have spent his time seeking the Lord's blessing on his own life, and now as soon as his tongue is loosed, the first thing he wants to do is bless God himself and bless the people who are around him. Do we want to be ready for the Lord? We need to realize that the faithless become faithful. This is encouraging to us. We can learn, even in the weakness of our own hearts, that God intends to use each and every one of us, regardless of how weak our faith, to bless the people around us. Do you want to be ready for God? We need to recognize, like Zechariah eventually did, that your faithfulness to God is really, really tiny. Even on your best day, your faithfulness is just a little teeny bit. The Apostle Paul said it this way, my most righteous deeds are what? They're filthy rags. Even my best stuff is weak. If I'm going to be ready for the Lord, I need to finally get off my religious high horse and realize the real reason I'm blessed, the real reason I have an opportunity to bless others is not because I can learn to be faithful, it's because God is always faithful even to someone like you and I. God is faithful to the faithless. I might even say it this way. When we are convinced that we have something to offer God, we generally are going to miss what he's offering. As long as we think that God is lucky, he got us on the religion team, we are going to miss what his faithfulness really looks like. God's faithfulness is most profoundly and clearly seen by those like Zechariah who say, I am so faithless. Another day where I didn't stand strong like I ought to have. I am so grateful for God's faithfulness to me. The fact of the matter is we prefer to earn God's favor. And I know you might argue with me a little bit about that in your head, but at the end of the day, we really would prefer not to owe God anything. We, if God were to pour blessing out on our lives, we want to at least in some way be able to say in the back of our mind, yeah, but, you know, I did sort of kind of follow his ways. 
I, di- I mean, I did kind of keep my nose clean. I'd missed all of the really, really big sins. All I did was a little bit of gossip. You know that sin that's described in the Bible like a forest fire? I don't know. Yeah, that sounds okay. Are you familiar with what forest fires do? You live in southern Oregon in August? Okay. We really do. We want to we want to earn God's favor. Zechariah teaches us something about being ready for the Lord. We become profoundly ready for the Lord when we say, Lord, I do not deserve you. And you might say, when in my Christian life do I finally get to the point where I can, I can be on the same... T- God, God is working for me because I'm working for him. I got bad news for you. It never gets that way. Over the course of your Christian life, God will show you more and more how little you deserve a Christian life. That's the whole idea, to draw as close to God as we possibly can. The closer you get to God, the more you realize you're not him. The more you realize that you need him to change your heart. If the gospel is working in our heart the way it ought to be by faith, the day you are most profoundly convicted of your sin was not the day of your conversion, it will be the day of your death. Because on that day you will spend a life learning what God is really like. And your heart will be convicted to the core. After, after 60 years, I still struggle with sin, God. You are so gracious. You are so faithful, even in my weakness. We need to repent. The fact is, day in and day out, we'd like to earn God's favor. And instead, what Zechariah shows us is God is faithful to the faithless. Be ready for the Lord. Recognize our faithlessness. Repent and learn to rest in God's favor that he did that he gives us. All right, look down at verse 67 of Luke chapter 1. We're going we're gonna to end with a, a brief look at Zechariah's song. So the baby is born, they name him John, his mouth is opened. What's interesting is the last thing we hear from Zechariah from his own mind is how will this happen? Everything else that is recorded by, uh, spoken by Zechariah is either a blessing of God or this song, as it says, is a, a prophecy of the Holy Spirit. So the last thing Zechariah says of his own accord is a statement of doubt. And from then on, he is speaking the words of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. Ready for the Lord, the silent become worshipers. September 29th, 2014, I don't expect any of you to remember that day. It was the day a world record was set in Arrowhead Stadium, the home of the Kansas City Chiefs. The record was the loudest outdoor stadium cheer of all time. It was measured at 137 decibels. That's, I, my understanding is that's loud. The comparison was that is uh, about the same volume as a thunder a clap or a jet engine. Why did the Chiefs seek to set this record? And I just have to bring this up because it's annoying. Because the Seahawks had set that record a couple of years earlier and they wanted to beat the Seahawks. So the Seahawks, I think, said something like, oh yeah, go ahead, we'll just win the Super Bowl. But good job on that loud stadium thing. That's great. My understanding is how that conversation went. 
why were they setting that? Why were they cheering like this? The re main reason football people cheer. I mean, the Chiefs, if they win a game, they ought to be cheering. They're excited. They're moved. I'm not, I don't want to pick on you. I'm not picking on you. I'm picking on you know, church people in general. You notice at a stadium, you don't hear over the loudspeaker, okay, folks, we're going to now stand because a touchdown was scored. Please rise to your feet. Uh, touchdown was short, and please yell, yay team. You, do they ever have to do that? What happens when a touchdown is scored? It goes nuts. This goes bonkers. I'm not saying there isn't a reason in church to help us work together and worship together and have a sense of unity. That's not what I'm saying. But there is something that can be missing, and it's the movement of the Spirit in our hearts. To be ready for the Lord, the silent become worshipers, not because we learn to sing a new song, not because we like the music. The silent become worshipers because God moves in the fabric of our affections, and we say, he's like this? Are you saying he really did that? And we're moved to proclaim out loud worship. Look at Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Uh, his father, that is John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. What's amazing about this song is he's not even singing a song about having a son, and his song at the beginning isn't even about his son. Rewind nine months earlier, what was the only thing he was concerned about? having a baby as an old man. Now he's like, oh, I had a son? Great, Jesus is coming. I mean, if we went to a new dad and say, what's it like to be a new dad? And he said, I love Jesus so much. We'd say, well, that's great. We don't have a problem with that. But I want to know about what, what it looks like to be a new dad. See, Zechariah's heart has been rewired. He sees what God is doing in the world about it. And now the fact that he has a son is playing second fiddle to what's really going on here. Salvation has showed up to the world. Now, all of a sudden, his eyes have been opened up to what God is doing, and it's much bigger than giving him a family in his old age. He sees, God is saving rebels like me. Now I see why that angel didn't turn around and walked away, because I'm exactly the kind of person that needs a Savior like this. Verse 71, the prophet said, we should be saved from our enemies and from all those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers to remember his holy covenant. God is now going to deliver his people from their enemy, and that enemy is their own sin and their own death. I want to compare just two things. Zechariah, at the beginning of Luke chapter 1, was going to work. You can imagine, he walked in, he punched in, put on his priest coat or whatever they wore. He's got to go to work. And he goes into the break room. They throw the lots on the table. And they say, hey, Zach, you're time to light the incense. He goes, all right, let's get this in the game. Let's get in the game. Get my head in the game. Don't drop the incense. Don't drop the incense. When it was Zechariah's job to worship, he didn't. When it was his job to get it done, to get worship done, he didn't worship. 
But when the Spirit of God moved in his heart, because God is sending a Savior to save sinners, he did. See, worship is something that is a work of God in our own heart where we are moved with affection towards God who would save someone as rebellious and sinful even as us. Zechariah didn't sing a blessing of, I have a son. Zechariah sang a blessing of, God has sent his son that we might be saved. Look down at verse 77 and 78, towards the end of his song. This is his blessing. The Lord is going to send John to prepare for his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of, of their sins. Do you think that meant anything to Zechariah who argued with the angel of the Lord? And look how he describes God in verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. How does he describe this forgiving God? A tender, merciful God. See, Zechariah knew his Bible. He knew when he put that incense onto the altar and it was burning up and clouding his vision of God, that that should be his permanent relationship with God, veiled, separated. And then he argues with the angel of the Lord in that moment. He realizes Zechariah should not be looking at the incense. Zechariah should be the incense thrown on the altar for his own sin. And he realizes God's tender mercy to him was to merely close his mouth for nine months so then he could spend the rest of his days moved with love for God that he might worship and bless him. Verse 80, the child, that is John, grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Do we want to be ready for God? We need to break our silence. Be moved with affection for God who would save us and worship him with our voices. Uh, Jesus talks about this over in Luke uh, 19, verse 28. Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. It's near the end of his life, and he was on a cult, and people were worshiping and praising him. Of course, the religious people said, tone it down. Tone it down. I mean, yeah, you've healed some people, but this is getting out of hand. This is what people were saying. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the Pharisees said to the crowd, Teacher, rebuke him. And Jesus says this, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Do we want to be ready for God's presence? Our voices ought to be crying out in worship to God. Our voices ought to be crying out in prayer to God before he comes. When he comes, you won't have to ask to worship. Now is the time to worship him in faith. Now is the time we stand at the altar. And the question is, are we filled with doubt or will we allow the power of God by his spirit to move in our hearts to say he saved a sinner like me? I will worship him. We need to repent that God has moved heaven and earth to send his his son and oftentimes our worship falls silent. Sometimes we're waiting for God to do something answer a prayer the fact is he already has he sent Jesus to come and die on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins ready for the Lord 
couple of things. The Lord has come, and the Lord is coming, and John the Baptist tells us we need to be ready for the return of the Lord. So just three things I might mention, and then we're going to close in prayer. Well, we're going to sing one more song and then close. First of all, like I said before, we ought to repent of the things we're praying for. We're praying for impossible things that are small things. We should be praying, along with the other believers around the world, for the kinds of things that will change the world. Do you pray for revival in our city? What if thousands and thousands of thousands of people were moved by the Holy Spirit to come to Christ for salvation? Would we love that? Would it change the world? Would we pray that even if that revival started somewhere other than here? Of course we would. To see God's movement in the world, we don't care where it starts, but that God might do it. Do we pray for revival in our city? Do we pray for the sins of the people around us? Of course we pray that they might have blessing, but the people in our life that we know, do we pray that God would deliver them from temptation, give them victory over sin? Do we pray for those who cause us harm? those we have resentment towards, those we have a beef with, those who have wronged us. The Bible calls us, what if, what if they were to find the Lord in forgiveness? Well, of course, it'd be terribly irritating. But it would change everything. We need to repent of our small dreams, our small prayers, as impossible as they are, and pray that God might do a work of redemption in our time. Second, I think we also, as a people who are Christians, those of us who are believers, we ought to repent of our pride. Bad things happen in our life. Things go awry. Negative news. All these kind of things happen to everybody. And every now and then, we are going to say to God, I've been doing the right thing. I've been towing the line. And you're doing this? And that prayer reveals what's going on in our heart. It's that God owes us something. And Zechariah reminds us, he doesn't owe us anything. He just gives us everything. And we need to repent of our pride and be reminded that God is faithful to us, not because we deserve it, but because that's what he's like. He's faithful even to the faithless. Finally, I think we ought to repent of our silence. God is our worthy of our deepest, most heartfelt worship. Love expressed to him in prayer. Love expressed to him in voices listed, lifted in singing. Worship expressed through serving others in the community around us in the church. He is worthy of our deepest worship. And often, because of the complexities of life and the distractions of life, we fall silent. We ought to sing and worship with hearts moved, hands raised, voices lifted.